0: It's a pleasure to uh, uh, introduce our next presenter, Doug Bondo. Uh, Doug's had a long career in the public policy arena, especially located here in the District of Corruption. He was a special assistant to President Ronald Reagan, was involved in negotiating a number of international treaties and in killing the Law of the Sea Treaty, which was a particularly horrible international instrument, and Doug had a very important role in sending that to the bottom of the sea, which was where it belonged. He's uh, worked as a journalist. He's written for Fortune Magazine, National Interest, Wall Street Journal, many other newspapers. I asked him how many books he's written or edited, and he said, uh, I'm not sure. So that tells you it's rather a large number. He has a law degree from Stanford University, and he's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Doug.
1: Well, thanks, Tom. It was supposed to be a a double feature this morning with Malou Innocent, and uh, she ended up uh, moving to Philadelphia, so you're missing uh, kind of one of our better analysts who's going to stay with us as uh, an adjunct fellow, so you're stuck with me. But it's a great pleasure to uh, be here this morning and talk about foreign policy. You know, it's one of those issues when one thinks of a free society that isn't always obvious, what should a foreign policy be? What is a foreign policy for a free society? What is a foreign policy for a republic? And it's impossible to get away from foreign policy. Presidents like to run on domestic issues. Bill Clinton was elected. Uh, his campaign slogan was, it's the economy, stupid. You know, who cares if George W. Bush is or H. W. Bush is a war hero and won the Iraq war? My goodness, you know, let's talk about the economy. Certainly, uh, Barack Obama, when he ran for office, his focus was domestic policy. He came in in the midst of economic crisis. He had a health care bill he wanted to pass. But what you find is it's virtually impossible. You look around the world today, we're very busy. Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, Syria, Russia, China, you know, on and on it goes. And the events of 9-11 certainly demonstrated how foreign policy can come home to the United States. And if we look uh, today, you know, we're at an you know, important juncture when it comes to countries like Syria, and we don't know quite where this administration is going. We could find ourselves in yet another war. And I think it's a challenge for us, because in many ways, American uh, force structure, American deployments, the American military remains in many ways tied to containment. That is, we had a fairly clear policy for most of the Cold War. You know, the evil empire collapsed back in 1989, and then the question is now what? And we're still somewhat dealing with that. Uh, When the wall fell, when the Soviet Union dissolved, Colin Powell, then secretary or uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, commented, you know, I'm running out of enemies. I'm down to Fidel Castro and Kim Il-sung. And uh, while Cuba and North Korea are evil, they weren't much of a replacement for the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, Maoist China, and everything else. The question then is, what do you do in that world? What are your alliances for? What is your military for? I think that's really where we're stuck today, is still dealing with that roughly a quarter century after the wall fell. And the challenge of kind of constructing a foreign policy for a free society, I think, is heightened by 9-11. There was a sense of American invulnerability. The US had not really been attacked at home or had war at home since 1865. There was Pearl Harbor. The Japanese sent some balloons over that hit the mainland. But for the most part, the US didn't have the kind of war in the homeland that other countries have had until going back to the Civil War. You know, Europeans are quite used to this kind of conflict, other countries as well. And what we found in 9-11 was suddenly thousands of dead on our home, homeland. And the, the prospect of future being far worse. If you marry terrorism with weapons of mass destruction, one can imagine you know, the kind of carnage and what, what could follow. Then the question, though, is you know, does our force deployment, does our structure today actually meet this need? And what should that policy be for a democratic republic? At times, I worry you know, the discussion about foreign policy misses the fact that, yes, we want to defend ourselves, but we have to remember it is a democratic republic that we are defending. It's a free society. That we have to ensure that our mode of defense for our society doesn't undercut the very values that make our society so important and so uh, you know, such a place to live. During the Cold War, foreign policy was easy. More or less from 1945 to 1989, you can argue about exactly when the Cold War started and exactly when it ended. Nevertheless, foreign policy was relatively easy. Ronald Reagan, I think, correctly referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. It certainly was evil. Tens of millions of people perished. Tens of millions of people went through the Gulag. This is a country that expanded its power into Eastern Europe, was threatening, was worrisome, at times allied with, at times you know not quite so allied with uh, Maoist China, but nevertheless, you look around the world from an American standpoint, from a European standpoint, there was that sense of a central puppeteer that the U.S. had to deal with. You had local and regional threats; everything was tied back to a potential hegemonic threat, and foreign policy, for the most part, was focused on that. You had a set of alliances, you had forced, uh, you know, bases around the world, you had forces around the world, you had a large military far larger military during kind of nominal peacetime that we had ever had before. Previously, we would ramp up Civil War, World War I, and then ramp down. Basically, after World War II, while the force came down from the 13 million men who were under arms to fight the, uh, the Nazis and the Japanese, we still had a much larger military than traditional in our uh, history. So the question then is when the Soviet Union disappears, when the evil empire disappears, now what do you do? And there were a lot of attempts to come up with something kind of to replace that. And we're kind of in that today. If you read some of the analyses, people talk about the other great dangers in the world. But quite honestly, there are dangers in the world, but none of them are the same as the Soviet Union with nuclear missiles, which we could imagine a nuclear exchange. None of them equate with the Red Army that could take over Western Europe. None of them equate with the Red Navy floating around the Pacific. You know, what we face today is a very different kind of world than we faced uh, during the Cold War. And it's important as we think about foreign policies to remember the costs of foreign policy. In Washington, as you know, Tom referred to the, uh, the district of corruption, you know, this is a very incestuous place and it revolves around power. And quite frankly, if you want to be involved in the process, you know, it's very rewarding to want an expansive American role. You want to go to conferences in Europe, you don't go to conferences in Europe by suggesting the Europeans should defend themselves. I've written a lot on Korea, and the South Koreans, for some very strange reason, have not been impressed when I've suggested maybe they should spend more on their own defense. As they've told me, they have other needs to take care of. They much prefer to have us to take care of them. This is a city that kind of rewards that kind of engagement, especially if you happen to be in power. You know, imagine, compare the Secretary of State of the United States to being the foreign minister of, oh, I don't know, Italy. You know, who gets better treated? who can wander around the world telling the rest of the world what they think and what they should do. The foreign minister of Italy, as far as I can tell, doesn't have much to do. Secretary of State is very busy wandering the world trying to bring peace and settlements and instructing the rest of the world. So this is a city that kind of really emphasizes the notion that expansive foreign policy is a very good thing. But it's important to think about what the costs of foreign policy are. That that kind of an expansive foreign policy does not come cheap. The first is a military budget. We have to view the defense budget, or I think more accurately, the military budget as the price of your foreign policy. The worst thing you can do is have an expansive foreign policy and not have the force structure to back it up. You know, If you're going to put people into uniform, they have to have the force, they have to have the numbers, they have to have the equipment to do what you want them to do. The more you want them to do, the more you have to spend. The US today spends around $700 billion on the military. You know, if you look at, compared to the rest of the world, we're something like 45% of the rest of the world. Dramatic numbers. And that is primarily because most of our military is focused on offense, that is, projection of power, not defense. We demonstrated in 9-11 we weren't very good, actually, at defending the homeland. Indeed, despite the fact we had a Department of Defense, they came up with a Department of Homeland Security, which is viewed as separate from the Department of Defense, Much of what our Department of Defense does is actually defends other countries. It's not clear that, in fact, defending other countries is necessarily the same as defending the U.S. So your foreign policy is going to determine how much you want to spend. And I worry today much of the talk about defense budget is being driven by budget concerns. They matter, but you want to start with foreign policy. You don't want to just cut your defense budget and keep your foreign policy, because then you're out of whack and you endanger your personnel. The second is the risk of war. You know, the reality is war happens. And you know, we view kind of get around the world, we can deter conflict. But the world, you know, world history is filled with the failure of deterrence. World War I, World War II, there were alliance structures. There were threats to defend. They failed. You know, world War I demonstrated how alliances basically become a transmission belt of war. You know, the moment you start the process, the Archduke is murdered on June 28, 1914, in Serbia. And what happens, lo and behold, by a couple months later, all of Europe is involved in war. The U.S. and Japan eventually get in because of an assassination in kind of a distant part of the Balkans. The alliance structure did that. And we see that today. You know, what happens in Taiwan? Are we committed to defending Taiwan? Back in 2008, Georgia, the country wanted to get into NATO, pushed very hard for American support, started a war in that region with Russians, not very smart, and they hoped for American intervention. Apparently it did go to the cabinet, and to my mind, thankfully, you know the Bush administration decided it wasn't worth a war with Russia to defend Georgia. But if you set tripwires around the world, you look at Korea, traditionally our forces along the DMZ in Korea are viewed as a tripwire. That is to ensure automatic involvement. If there's a conflict. So, if you're going to set out these kind of alliances and forces, you have to recognize you might end up at war. And virtually never do people expect to end up in the wars they end up in. Third, of course, is the loss of life. I mean, part of that is military 4,500 dead in Iraq, for example. You know, and the good news there was far more of our military personnel survived because of better medical care. Back in Vietnam, a much higher percentage of casualties died. But today, many of the people who've been wounded have grievous wounds that will follow them for the rest of their lives. In terms of IEDs, uh, explosive devices, people loss of limbs, the mental injuries, you know, these are people who will be suffering from those injuries for the rest of their lives. Moreover, war is not a very friendly place for other people either. In Iraq, which many people view as a humanitarian exercise, Probably the best estimate is that about 200,000 civilians died in that conflict. Now, we didn't kill them, but we blew the place up. And lo and behold, the carnage that then you know, happened, we were there. And then what? Half the Christian community was pushed out of the country, many of them actually into Syria. And they're scared to death about what's going to happen in that country. You know, Two to three million people internally displaced or forced abroad as refugees, a country ravaged by crime and other things. War is not a very good humanitarian tool. And we should take that cost into account when we start thinking about the kind of foreign policy we're going to be engaged in. There's an extraordinary burden on military personnel. We've seen over the last decade or so. When you turn American soldiers basically into occupiers, you turn them into they're supposed to be mayors and counselors and policemen and everything else. You have them long-term trying to rebuild societies. We've turned our reservists basically into substitutes, not just complements in an emergency, but with great regularity, calling them up. We pull them out of their jobs. We disrupt their families. You know, so it's a very real burden. It has an impact on recruiting if you want to maintain your force over the long term. Kind of interventionist foreign policy has to affect your domestic liberties. Randolph Bourne once said, war is the health of the state. You know, the point is, the more you get involved in these things, we find, for example, NSA, the, the recent disclosures, the pervasiveness of surveillance, you know, many of the uh, you know, parts of the Patriot Act, the ability of the government to find out what we're doing without warrants, without effective oversight. You know, this president claims that he basically can kill on his own order. The New York Times did this story. They all kind of sit around and do video. Kind of they bring down screens you know, and pictures of people. And does the president, kind of like the Roman Coliseum, you know, does this or this if somebody gets off. To- You know, President Bush said he could arrest an American citizen on American soil and hold them incommunicado. I mean, the pressure of this kind of involvement, you know, automatically puts pressure on domestic liberties. And, of course, domestic liberties is one of the reasons we want to defend our society, one of the things that makes our society unique and makes it uh, so valuable. You know, if you're going to have this kind of foreign policy, you have to be prepared at some point to face the possibility of conscription. We've had people worrying about that at different points. If you want to kind of garrison the globe, if you want to have soldiers on station forever. And then there's terrorism. Now, terrorism is a monstrous act. I mean, there's no justification the attacks on civilians. But it's important to recognize why do people do this? Now, this isn't surprising. Americans, I think, tend to look at the world de novo and think something that's happened to them hasn't happened to anybody else. But in fact, terrorism has been, I mean, very active around the world. Israel, Sri Lanka, India, I mean, Russia over the Chechnya conflict, bombings and subways, uh, an auditorium full of kids uh, at a school were taken. You go back in history, uh, a number of the czars of Imperial Russia were assassinated. Indeed, the attack on the Archduke, I mentioned that the trigger For World War I was a terrorist assault by an ethnic Serb who was concerned that the heir apparent to the Austro-Hungarian Empire would actually be more liberal. And in being more liberal would reduce the likelihood of getting an independent kind of larger Serbia. So terrorism is something that's been with uh, us for a very long time. Until Iraq, the most prolific suicide bombers were actually in Sri Lanka. They had an entire corps of, of miners who were trained to uh, basically as part of the long-running conflict there between the majority Sinhalese and the minority Tamils. Now, there are lots of reasons why people do this, but for the most part, what you see with this, they don't do it because we're so free. I mean, if if that was the case, they wouldn't be bombing Moscow. Moscow is not a particularly free place. They don't have a First Amendment. Vladimir Putin isn't particularly friendly to the notion of freedom. Now, what happens here is people view them as being or view whoever they are targeting as being at war with them. Again, nothing justifies what's done. The good news is that these people don't have carrier groups and armored divisions and nuclear weapons, because if they did, they'd use them. But how the way they strike, unfortunately, is terrorism. And the danger for the future is if they do get their hands on weapons of mass destruction, it's quite scary. There's an interesting colloquy uh, when the uh, New York Times, or uh, New York, kind of the Times Square would-be bomber a couple of years ago was before the judge being sentenced. He was a Pakistani-American, a US citizen from Pakistan. And the good news we faced in a homeland is many of these people turn out to be utterly incompetent. We can be very happy about that. I mean, this is a man who set the bomb in his SUV. It didn't go off, and he didn't bother fleeing the country for a while, giving it you know, the government time to track him down. I would think you'd set the bomb, and then you'd take your cab to JFK airport and fly away. But he was before the judge. And the judge says, why on earth did you do this? Well, what, what on earth? And he said, well, because the U.S. is attacking, attacking Muslims in Pakistan, drones and whatnot. And the judge said, well, how about, I mean, these are civilians. I mean, there's no military wandering around uh, Times Square. And the bomber said, well, they elect their government. The government's doing that. They are responsible. And then the judge said, well, come on, but they're kids. It's not like you've made any distinction here. You just want to set a bomb off and slaughter people. And his response was, Well, the US government doesn't care. It kills kids with its drones. Why should I make the distinction? Now, Again, this doesn't justify what he did, but it's important to understand what's going on in the mind of somebody like that. And what the reality of that means is the more we do overseas, the more enemies we're going to make. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything, but it means we have to keep that in mind. And I think drones is a far better way to deal with bad guys than invasions. We have to recognize there's a fair amount of evidence. There's a lot of arguments going on in kind of raw numbers. But the drones, even we admit, sometimes we kill the wrong people. And I tell people, imagine if China was dropping drones in American neighborhoods saying they were killing terrorists and your neighbor's house was incinerated. You might take that a bit amiss. And you might not be so willing to listen to Beijing's explanation that this is really reasonable on their behalf. So we have to recognize there are a lot of costs of kind of an active military role around the world. The more active you are, the higher those costs are going to be. And the question then is, take that into account. And if you take that into account, what kind of a foreign policy do we want? If you look at the Clinton, uh, Bush, uh, you know, HW, or W Bush, and Obama administrations, I would argue what you find is a pretty much a continuity. Despite all the partisan backbiting and arguments made back and forth, I mean, Bill Clinton's response to the end of the Cold War was to expand. We're gonna have our own war in the Balkans, we're going to expand NATO, you know, this sort of thing. I mean, there was really no retrenchment at all. Military spending came down somewhat, but if you looked at military spending, it basically what happened was in real terms, out of you adjust for inflation, military spending dropped from the Cold War high where Reagan had taken it up right before the end of the Cold War and dropped down basically to more or less the Cold War average. Now, then you go on to the George uh, W. Bush. Now, he was more active. He started his own war, Iraq, which persisted as well as Afghanistan. He came into office talking about humility, but 9-11 pushed them in a much more kind of dramatic direction. And what was ironic there, I think, is that while, in my view, going to Afghanistan was perfectly appropriate, You know, my view is you've got to send the message. If you host terrorist training camps and they attack America, you're not going to be in power anymore. We don't like that, and it's very important in terms of the people you're dealing with and very important to send that message (coughs) beyond. But we stuck around for another decade to try to fix Afghanistan. I've been there twice, and I've yet to meet any Afghan civilian other than somebody in the pay of the government who has anything good to say about the government. Their view is these are a bunch of incompetent thieves which for the most part, as far as I can tell, is true. You know, this is our partner then in trying to bring democracy to Afghanistan. It's a tragic land. There are a lot of good people there who want kind of a liberal society of the sort that we want. But it's hard to imagine how we can deliver that to them. And then the administration spent most of its effort on Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11. And there we saw kind of the the worst outgrowth of an attempt at nation building. Now, Obama came in, and of course, a lot of criticism you know, from Republicans of him. Yet, I look at his administration and say, well, what's changed? He followed the Iraq timetable of George W. Bush. He twice increased the number of troops in Afghanistan. He's kind of kept every international commitment that we have, Started his, got, got involved in the Libya War, and is edging us into Syria. I mean, this is a man that lots of reasons to criticize him, but it's hard to criticize his foreign policies being particularly weak. And the failures, some of them that I think are manifold, like Egypt, is a failure that goes back decades. I mean, he supported originally Mubarak just as every previous president had done so. And in Egypt is a case where it's hard to imagine what we can do. People talk as if Washington controls the events in uh, Egypt. But in fact, they don't. The military will do what it wants. The people there are outraged by uh, dictatorship. America has very little power to respond there. And until last year, military spending was still growing, even under Barack Obama. So the notion that we've somehow weakened the force and massive cuts, no. I mean, this year, because of sequestration, it's come down. But if you look over the next decade, the projections are it's going to increase. Now, budget pressures may stop that. But again, if you look at Clinton, Bush, Obama, it's very hard to see anything dramatically different. I mean, Obama, you know, in terms of his active, much more active on drone strikes, has kept Guantanamo Bay open, NSA operating under him as well as under George W. Bush. So I think on this is one of those issues where what we find is, in many ways, there's not much difference among the parties, that unfortunately, what we don't see is a serious debate on these issues. Now, we're starting to see some within parties. I mean, I think Rand Paul phenomenon is something that will be interesting to see how that carries forward. He and Chris Christie kind of going back and forth on some of these issues. I think he's very healthy. It's about time to see serious people at the national level debate this. But until now, for the most part, there's been very little. If you look at the presidential race, it was Ron Paul, for the most part, among Republicans. You might get one person on the Democratic side. But for the most part, it was continuity. And the question is, why should we carry this kind of burden? You know, why should we essentially have what amounts to a Cold War military carrying out this kind of overarching foreign policy of troops all over the world, alliance structure all over the world, defense commitments all over the world? And I think the challenge here is, if you're thinking traditional security concerns, I mean, real attack on America of the Cold War variety, it ain't there. It just isn't. I mean, Vladimir Putin's a nasty guy, but there's no evidence he has any delusion that he's going to dominate the world. And the good news is he's kind of, a, in my view, a garden-variety thug. He has no overarching ideology. There's no claim here of, kind of communism will we'll, do all this wonderful stuff. There are a bunch of cynics. They're in power. He's, you know, he's kind of got all the elites around him. His job is to keep them rich. They keep him in power. Everybody's happy. The last thing he wants is a war. He'll be nasty along his border you know, if you're dumb enough, like the country of Georgia, to get averse to him. And you have these kind of secessionist movements. He'll slap you down, but beyond that, this is a man who has no particular illusions about dominating the world. The Russian military has been a real mess. They're trying to fix it, but even fixing it, it's got a long, long ways to go. China's more serious, but China isn't anywhere along the way to matching American military spending. We're roughly four times the military spending levels of China. They just launched their first carrier. Now, that's an aircraft carrier that was sold to scrap by Ukraine that was left with them when the Soviet Union dissolved. You know, they finally have pilots who can fly off of it, but they don't have an arsenal, and they don't have carrier groups where they protect it, and we have 11 carrier groups. You know, they're not in a position to kind of expand their power. What they're working very hard on, and this is our challenge, is what they call area denial. What they want to do is deter us. It's very simple. They don't have to match us aircraft carrier for aircraft carrier. They just need submarines and missiles that can sink our carriers. Because at that point, the president of the United States sits there, and there's a problem with the Taiwan situation, that Chinese are threatening Taiwan. Taiwan's a wonderful country, democratic, capitalist. And the giant chiefs come in and say, well, Mr. President, we could send the Seventh Fleet into the Taiwan Strait, but you know the Chinese might sink it. Then the president has to sit there and say, oh, wouldn't that be fun, explaining to the American people why a, an aircraft carrier, multi-billion dollar piece of hardware with 5,000 sailors went down to the bottom of the ocean. They wanted to tear the problem from our standpoint is it's very hard to overcome that. It doesn't cost a lot to deter. It costs a lot to overcome that. You know They're not threatening us in a traditional sense. What they are trying to do is stop us from dominating them along their border. Beyond that, it's pretty hard to come up with a serious threat. I mean, the Iranians, no one wants them to have nukes. But they know they'd be annihilated if they made them and tried to use them. And all the evidence, I think, so far, even from some of the Israeli security people I talked to, is a general view that, you know, the elite there is pretty, uh, you know, kind of practical, shall we say. People who've made themselves a lot of money. Billionaires, Johnny, who's viewed as a moderate, wasn't allowed to run for president. You know, the security forces, these people are scrapping for power. It's hard to, you know, they don't seem to be interested in incinerating themselves. So the question, if that traditional security cern doesn't work, what else is there? One well, other argument is we should preempt. We should kind of look ahead and try to, f- you know, figure out who to take out now? Who could be a problem in the future? And that was basically what Iraq was supposed to be. But there's a difference between preemption and preventive war. Now, preemption is it's December sixth, nineteen forty-one, and you see the Japanese fleet steaming towards um, Pearl Harbor. You could take it out. You don't have to sit there and say, "Well, we're not, we're, you know, we're going to wait, and make sure the planes take off." No, you see an imminent threat. Take it out. That's one of the arguments over the Six Day War in 1967 with Israel. You know, you try to make a judgment on something that really is imminent, you don't have to wait around for the attack. Very different from that is preventive war, which is I want to look and decide and look into the future and take out a country that might become a problem. Well, there are proposals, you know, in 1945, uh, you know, George Patton, one of our generals, wanted us to turn the, you know, rearm the Nazi soldiers and launch our war against the Soviet Union. Take them out now. Well, we can, we have everybody under arms. Well, that would have been a lot of fun. You just finished World War II, and we said, let's go straight into World War III. There were proposals in the 1960s to uh, go in and take out nuclear weapons from China. Now, it's very hard to play this stuff out. It's counterfactual. Who knows how these things would have turned out? But I suspect they wouldn't have turned out well. Certainly, the China we face today would be a very different place, a much more hostile place. It's not clear you would have stopped them from eventually developing nuclear weapons. You know, starting another war with Russia in 1945 is kind of a horrifying thought. The problem is, if you think about the idea of preventive war, who among our political leaders has the foresight, the knowledge, the understanding to make good judgments about that? And I think Iraq is a very good example. We were warned, oh, my goodness, you know, mushroom clouds, all this stuff. Turns out they didn't have any of it that in fact this is Iraq, And what we managed to do is suddenly destabilize the entire Middle East, empower Iran, kill 4,500 of our own soldiers, create chaos there. Iraq today is a country that is helping Syria, who we don't like, despite what we asked them to do. You know, friendly to Iran, doing things, you know, the initial view was this is going to be great. We were going to put in as president of Iraq an exile, an emigre who hadn't been in Iraq since 1957 but we could fly him over with some of his closest armed friends and make him president. And then, of course, this would be a country they would love us, they would give us military bases that we could use to attack its neighbors. And indeed, isn't this wonderful Iraq will even decide to recognize Israel, you know, kind of ignoring all of the kind of inherent animosities there. I mean, it's a world, that was the worldview of the kind of preventive war that was launched back in nineteen or 2003. It's very hard to make that work. I think it makes a lot more sense to adopt policies of watchful wariness, to adjust your military spending if you see emerging threats, to work with allies and friends if you see those potential uh, threats emerging. But the idea is you start a war to try to prevent the future war. Well, you need better knowledge than most of our people have ever shown. In terms of terrorism, you know, we have to go after terrorists. They kill our people. But carrier groups and armored divisions aren't very good for that. I mean, the best way are things like seals, special forces, better intelligence, cutting off funding, working with other um, countries. What you need is kind of a, f- a finesse that overall the Department of Defense typically doesn't give you. I mean, going in—I mean, to get Bin Laden. I mean, that was something where we, we didn't launch a nuclear strike to take out Abbott Land. We launched seals in and said, "Get this guy." You know. angered the Pakistanis, guess what? That's the way life goes. You harbor this guy, even unknowingly. You can argue about whether they knew or not. That's what you got to do. But it requires a very different touch. Cutting off funding has been very important. Pressuring countries that have been a problem. Traditionally, our problems on terrorism have been our friends. It's Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Indeed, you look today, the question is, should we stay in Afghanistan? People warn, well, you know, that if, we, if the Taliban would come back, so would al-Qaeda. Well, al-Qaeda is already active across the border in Pakistan. This is supposed to be our ally. We've given them tens of billions of dollars over the years. We supported them under military dictatorship and democracy. And these guys are still active. So the notion that we have to stay in Afghanistan forever to try to fix that government to stop terrorists, well, they're active next door. Maybe we need to do more about that you know, Saudi Arabia, until al-Qaeda was stupid enough to actually attack the Saudi royal family, a lot of money flowed from Saudi Arabia. Now, not officially from the government, but there are a lot of folks there who weren't unhappy about funding al-Qaeda, except when it moved against the ruling elite there. And the Saudis are ruthless and did a very good job of chopping up the organization. So really, we're far better off on terrorism as working with groups like that, in terms of how do we stop them, as opposed to the notion of let's take over another country and kind of let's put our own government in and hope that that works. In essence, what we have to do, I think, on terrorism is a twofold strategy. The first is kill the bad guys, capture them, disable them, whatever it takes. And the second is make fewer enemies. It needs to be two-track. We need to think very clearly about when we intervene, what the long-term costs are, who are we angering, what kind of enemies are we making, And if there are people out there who want to do us ill, we have to take them out, stop them from doing so. But that doesn't require the kind of foreign policy in the military that we have today. You know, there's a more general sense, some folks essentially want the US to play global cop. And you look over the years at places the US has been, kind of hard to explain it other than that. You know, we need to fix Haiti. You know, they have a dictatorship. Let's go put somebody in. You know, Somalia, try to do something there. You know, should we have done something in Lebanon? Ronald Reagan is criticized because in 1983, after the bombing of the U.S. Embassy and the Marine Corps barracks, he pulled the troops out. People like Dick Cheney have said that that was appeasement and encouraged terrorism. My reaction is to look at that in horror and say, and what should we have done? Reagan in his diaries actually admits it was a big mistake. He put U.S. forces into the middle of a civil war with 25 different armed factions. Not a good idea, and he came to realize that. Bosnia, another civil war that the US got involved in, you know Kosovo, you know, and you look at Afghanistan, Libya, potentially Syria, well we need to fix all these places. The problem is it's very hard to fix them and the places we go rarely stay fixed. Haiti remains a mess, Kosovo remains a mess, Libya remains a mess, weapons spreading all over. The notion we can walk into Syria and do what? Support whom? What do we get out of that? Who knows? There's no outcome that we really can imagine. People talk about, well, you know, if we'd gone in early enough, we could have gotten this wonderful secular liberal government, dream on. We don't have much experience in having that come about. And it's important to recognize the unintended consequences that very often happen. And I think if you look at the Middle East, it's very useful to go back to 1953 in Iran, where the US engineered a coup that got rid of a prime minister who was elected. He was a lefty, not a friend of mine. Nevertheless, we put the Shah in, Well, he's our friend, but he's a thug. He suppresses the Democrats. The Islamists are the ones who win after the revolution in 1979. Of course, that causes us to support Saddam Hussein after he invades, active aggression, invades Iran. Now, of course, he thinks we're on his side. He decides to take out Kuwait, which, of course, we're not going to let him. And then he's shocked. And then we leave troops in Saudi Arabia. That gets people like uh, Osama bin Laden mad, you know, these things just endless. Once you're there, it's the tar baby. You can never get away from them. So there's some new thing you've got to deal with. Yet another, another, yet another. Indeed, one of the arguments for going into Iraq from Paul Wolfowitz, the Deputy Defense Secretary, was, well, at least after this, we can pull our troops out of Saudi Arabia. So we don't have that problem. You know, then The understanding there that you know, the moment you go in, it's not the end of the story. Suddenly, they're longer than you thought. You have bigger problems there than you thought. You know, any kind of intervention, the notion that we're going to fix these countries, I think, is really an illusion. The most, I think, powerful argument is a humanitarian one. There's a lot of bad stuff that goes on in the world, a lot of people die. I mean, that's the most compelling, the most powerful tug to say, stop them. And what you see going on in Syria, it's awful. Because the problem is there are two sides there. It's not as if there's just one side. You know, Bashir Assad's a nasty guy. I'd love to see him ground into the earth. I'd like to see him have the fate that Muammar Gaddafi had. That's an appropriate fate, I think, for dictators. Nevertheless, you know, it's not just, again, it's not easy to go into these things and stop them. And when that war ends, the war will not end. Assume that the, the insurgents win. I think what we may very well end up with is a Syria that's divided into two or three parts. But if the insurgents won, that wouldn't stop the bloodletting. That would merely start the next round, which is going after all the people who supported Assad. It's what we've seen in Libya. It's what we see in Iraq. You know, the problem is these things don't end very well. Very hard. And you start looking at the list of countries where you could imagine we would have been involved. Congo, Turkey with the Kurds, Kashmir, um, you know, you look at the Tamils, the Sri Lanka conflict. I mean, you go on and on. The question is, what distinction? How do you decide? What's your standard? Is Libya on the list when, in fact, there were no massacres, you know, while... I don't know. Sierra Leone never was. A quarter of a million people died. Well, should we have done Sierra Leone? Well, there's always Rwanda. But how about Congo? In Congo, there were about five years of war. The estimate is five million people. Up to five million people were killed. I don't remember anyone in the US saying, let's send in the 82nd Airborne." Well, why one country and not another? Now, presumably, you don't have to do them all if you want to do humanitarian intervention. But you have to make some distinctions and have some standard. And as far as I can tell, it's either I know it when I see it, which tends to be, you know, they're white Europeans or there's oil involved or something, as opposed to, you know, others. And the other is Michael O'Hanlon, who's a bright guy at the Brookings Institution, wrote an article a number of years ago with the late Stephen Solars, who was a congressman, and they tried to come up with criteria, and their criteria was, you know, if the death rate in another society is higher than the murder rate in America, we should intervene. I thought that's kind of interesting. You, You figure... You know, Mayor Giuliani takes over in New York City, brings down the, you know, the murder rate in America. Well, then we don't have to intervene. Well, we have to intervene in a lot of places now, because the murder rate's down. But if you know he go he leaves office, the new guy comes in, changes policing tactics, the murder rate goes up, then we can pull all the troops out. I mean, it's kind of an academically interesting way to think about the issue, but it's surely an insane standard to determine whether or not you go to war, whether or not you put your people at risk, whether or not you presumably have potentially long-term occupations trying to fix whatever it is that led to the initial conflict and leave something positive on the other end. You know, kind of the last refuge is just the notion of global leadership, right? You know, no one else will do it. We have the power. We have the responsibility. You hear this kind of stuff a lot. I remember when uh, Bob Dole ran against Bill Clinton, he said, leadership, we need leadership. And my reaction was, "That's, that's fine, but what does that mean? Leadership to do what? Real leadership requires making choices. Real leadership requires balancing costs and benefits. Real leadership requires remembering what your society is about. It requires remembering that the greatest responsibility of the US government is to its own citizens, including those in uniform. And I speak as somebody whose father was career Air Force, brother-in-law was career Air Force, my nephew whose wedding I happily attended on Saturday is a SEAL. Now these are people whose lives should be used very carefully. These are not people to kind of treat as gambit pawns in some global chess game and kind of you know, throw around the world. You know, if we ask people to risk their lives for our society, we should require that there be something very important at stake for our own society, that there's something important enough to take those risks. And that's kind of, that is what leadership is about. Leadership is making those decisions in terms of when is it and when is it not necessary. So the question, then, is if, if we say, what we're doing today really isn't necessary. What kind of a strategy, strategy should we have? Well, I think what we want is a much more restrained military role in the world. This is not isolationism. We want to be very involved in the world. I love the international travel. I've, I've had six foreign trips in a row since uh, May. I've been great. I've been to China twice, South Korea, been to Dubai, Qatar, just came back Ecuador recently. I was in China last week. You know, the world is fascinating, and we should engage it. We should trade with it. We should have cultural exchange. We should get to know people. We should have political cooperation. There are some international environmental issues one can imagine cooperating on. There are a lot of things. Immigration, we should welcome people to our country. But that's very different from whether or not we should try to get involved in other societies, fix other societies, engage in essentially social engineering, you know, trying to micromanage other societies irrespective of dramatic differences in history, tradition, religion, ethnicity, I mean, it's hard enough to have social engineering at home. You want to go fix Afghanistan? You want to fix Iraq? You want to fix these other countries? Imagine what that takes. And we should always remember that very often those you know, whom we want to help, I put that in quotes, may not appreciate our help. I always suggest what would have happened back in uh, you know, 1783, a peace treaty signed between the U.S. and Great Britain, and the French announced that they want to stay around to help us with nation building. After all, we hadn't been a nation. We were just kind of creating one, putting it together. They'd be quite happy to keep their troops there. They'd like a few bases there you know, to kind of constrain the British. But they want to help us. My guess is the colonists would not have been impressed. Their view would be, no, we fought the war for independence. And we meant to be independent. And indeed, you look around the world, there are a lot of places I have to believe we could govern them better than they govern themselves. But that's not the point. They don't want us to govern them, whether or not we can do it better. We have to kind of step back from that role. What we want to do is basically look around the world, number one, say, what's, what's happening? It's not just there's something happening, but how serious is it? Does it require our intervention? Now, there's a lot of things that go on. People talk about, well, we have interests there. Well, America is a superpower. It has interests everywhere. Look around the world. At the very least, there's probably commercial interests. But surely that does not warrant heavy intervention, whether it be diplomatic, economic, or military, all the time. We have to decide, is it important enough, does it matter? One of the great things about being a superpower is many things happen in the world and they actually don't matter very much to us. We may be interested, they may affect something, but that doesn't mean it matters a lot because it would take an awful lot really to fundamentally threaten very serious interests of the United States. We also should ask, are there alternative actors? Why should we be involved in the Balkans? Last time I looked, there's Europe, right? Europe has a larger population than us, Larger economy than us? I mean, if, if you look at, say, Sarajevo or something, say, what is it closer to? Berlin, Paris, or Washington? Well, maybe it should be a European problem. So why are we running, during the, the war of Kosovo, like 85% of the combat missions? Why? You know, the French and the, the British want to go to war in Libya to kind of drag us into it, and they ran out of missiles. But guess who they had to come to to get missiles? Well, excuse me, if you want a war... Maybe you should prepare for it. You shouldn't expect us to be the guys who come in and back you up. France has run into a problem on airlift and other things for Mali. Well, great, more power to them. They want to take care of Mali, please let them. But then they should have the lift capability. They should have the military forces to do that. So we want to look around the world and say alternative actors. And we have to recognize that until we are willing to say no, none of these countries has any incentive to change its current policy. Point is, as long as we treat them as welfare dependents, they will stay on the dole, because it's a good deal. If I could get you know, the French to take care of the Atlantic uh, you know, oceans, and I could get the Germans to take care of, I don't know, NORAD, and if I could get, you know, just think, if I could kind of foist all these responsibilities on somebody else and spend all that money domestically, I'd do it. That's the, their standpoint. They've done it forever. They're used to it. And, they, and they're very good at kind of the flattery. Oh, we can't do it without you. Oh my goodness, what would we do? We'd be helpless great. It's time to say sorry. You you all are grown-up countries. You're wealthy. You have high technology. These interests are much more importantly yours. Do it. What we want to do is take care of the problems that basically only we can do, and that tends to be the big problems. And we should basically be the backup. Now, if you look at all the messy territorial disputes in the uh, Pacific Ocean, do we want to be the guys on station who decide whether or not the Filipinos or the Chinese own Scarborough Reef? No. What we want to suggest is that if the Philippines wants to contest this with the Chinese, the Philippines needs to actually spend money on a real military. The current flagship for the Filipino military is an American cast off. I mean, come on, you want to go toe to toe with the emerging superpower, maybe you need to do more. What we want to do is be the backup and say we care about the sovereignty of allies, we care about hegemonic domination of a continent, but it's not our job to be on station for everything that's going on. We shouldn't be in the middle of all this stuff. Who owns the Diaoyu or the Sinkaku Islands? Who I mean, these are things that really, we want peace there. But we want to be very careful being drawn into this stuff. And our allies, of course, want to draw us in. Desperate, desperate to draw us in. The Point is, the US enjoys a lot of advantages. I mean, there's something great about growing up in a country that is powerful prosperous it attracts people around the world it has a philosophy and constitution that have attracted others that are popular you know that we have an economy that's you know can sustain itself huge advantages we have a geographical position that is an envy of the world with oceans on two sides peaceful neighbors north and south we should take advantage of those na- advantage we should take advantage of those benefits so what we want to do is can have a foreign policy that does so it doesn't mean being ignoring potential threats around the world. I think it means having the most powerful military on Earth, but it doesn't require us to spend close to half of the world's military spending. What we want to do is be able to deter attacks on us and support any critical ally if there's a hegemonic threat that they can't deal with. What we don't want to do is feel the need to engage in nation building, you know, social engineering, fixing failed societies, subsidizing wealthy allies, basically doing most of what we are doing today that can... Uh, consumes most of what our military does. That makes no sense for our foreign policy. You know, John Quincy Adams, you know, 150 years ago said, we don't go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We should be the well-wisher of the independence and freedom of all. We should. And Americans should be very involved around the world. But we want the U.S. government to step back and remember that the government is protecting a free society and a democratic republic. So it needs to do so in a way very consistent with those values, a way that takes into account... The lives and the liberties of the American people are the people who pay for, both in terms of money and lives, the U.S. military and intervention abroad. And I'll stop there. I'm happy to take any questions. (laughs) One of the current um, trendy ideas in the area of humanitarianism is responsibility to protect. And you've made clear what your attitude would be to that. But I wondered if you could talk some about how much penetration you see that idea getting uh, and whether it's adding any new factors to the humanitarian discussion. The idea of responsibility to protect, as the UN and others have been involved in this, the idea is a, a justification for ignoring traditional concerns of sovereignty. That is that other countries have a responsibility to intervene to protect people who are being abused by their own governments. I mean, in certain ways, it's nothing new. I mean, it's kind of, it's the, along the argument of humanitarian intervention. It's just kind of a doctrinal name for it. Uh, it's out there, but I think that what happens, the reality on humanitarian intervention is most countries and most governments really don't believe it. I mean, they believe in advancing their own interests. So, you know, where does France want to play, you know, kind of that policy? Well, it's Libya and Mali. North Africa that are close, you know, they didn't bother saying, we should go down to Congo. We have a response. You know, so that clearly, there's, there's a realpolitik sense where some of these doctrines become the kind of patina that's dropped over decisions made for other things. I mean, in many ways, that's what happened in Iraq is we're going into Iraq to get weapons of mass destruction. Oh, there aren't any. Oh, Saddam Hussein was an evil man. Isn't it wonderful we got rid of him? Well, yes, but that isn't quite why we were going in. I mean, lots of evil men around. So I think you know, it's one of those issues where the people who promote it hardest don't control any militaries. So they have to use it to try to get jinn people up and get people involved. But you see that, I mean, I think even Obama is clearly one who, I mean, he appoints people who like that idea. Susan Power, uh, for example, UN ambassador, has been very much a proponent of the humanitarian intervention. Susan Rice, his new NSC advisor. But he seems to resist it. I mean, uh, on Syria, he's just kind of clearly, I think, in certain ways, being dragged into this little by little. You know, he doesn't really want to get, he, I think he knows it would wreck his presidency, uh, while other people out there are saying, do it, do it, do it. So I, th- you, I think you see the folks with the responsibility for making the decisions tend to resist the doctrine. But it beca- you know, people can kind of use that to pull them in. So it's out there. It worries me. I mean, again, it's, it's the best argument out there. Which is people are dying. The problem is to say that still doesn't give us you know, an easy way of doing this. It doesn't give us a cost-free way of doing this. It doesn't give us, you know, how do you solve the, the ultimate issues? How long do you stay? All of those issues.
0: Thank you. Hi. <clears throat> yes, thank you very much. Um, we have a bunch of structural checks built into the constitution, you know, uh, and uh, we have, you know, you have to vote on military spending every two years. You know, it's forgotten at this point. But the biggest one that's uh, become recently a big deal is that we have a declaration of war thing where you're supposed to declare war before and the Congress has sort of delegated the duty to the executive and, uh, you know, war expands the executive and you've seen that in recent years. And, of course, the frequency of war has really, I mean, I guess you'd use the word improved. I mean, it's just a lot more frequent. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, um, first of all, you know, any changes and you know a lot more about it, but also... Um, Anything that could be done to alleviate that situation?
1: Well, I've long felt that the way to deal with the Constitution is after every important clause, put a parenthesis and say, and we really mean it. Right? I mean, this is one where it's, I mean, these weird, there's some weird arguments that get thrown out on how well you know, the U.S. has intervened in all these little things around. you sent a gunboat off. That entitles us to go halfway around the world and invade another, and occupy another country. Well, even if another president violated the clause by something he did, that doesn't mean a future president he or she has the authority to do that. Um, and, and I think the problem here is both, both congressional refusal to take up the responsibilities and presidential desire to kind of run the world. I mean, like, you're, you're the most powerful person on earth. How often do we hear that phrase, All right? You can do it, no one else, you can do it. And one of the, if you're a president in trouble, you know, on domestic policy, you propose, Congress disposes. Now, there are you know, executive orders. You know, and Obama is hardly the first person trying to push this really hard in terms of regulations and stuff. But the reality is Congress can defund. It can do any number of things on domestic policy. You want know, to nationalize American health care, he had to convince Congress. He couldn't do it on himself. He didn't try some executive order thing saying, now I get to decide everyone's health care. On foreign policy, it's much easier to do that. And you know, if you're a president in trouble, you kind of want to go overseas. I remember Richard Nixon went overseas. It was just a couple months before he resigned. In this kind of sense that domestically his policies in ruins, his political popularity is in ruins, but he could go overseas and be kind of you know I mean still treated as the head of state and head of government. So and I think Congress tends to acquiesce because look here in Congress, what's your best strategy? The president stands up, and says there's some terrible crisis somewhere. He has secret knowledge. He can't tell everybody, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's great as a congressman, you affirm him, and then if it goes badly, you criticize him. The last thing you want to do is actually have to vote on it. I mean, to make you responsible, I want you to own the war. I think that, you know, they hate this. They really hate that. So what we need is responsible officials. I mean, I think uh, Eisenhower was the last one on this issue where he said, I'm not going to take us into war without congressional authority You can go back to George Washington. We had presidents who made it very clear the department, as they called it, Congress was the one that declared war. Eisenhower affirmed that. Uh, But presidents since then have all said they can kind of go off and do war on their own. Uh, We need Congress to assert itself. It needs to cut funding. That's hard to do. It needs to kind of demand a role. And we need American citizens who care about it and argue that if you want a good decision on the most important issue that faces the US government, you put people at risk, you want the Congress involved. And as citizens, we should demand that. We should tell the president, no, 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 this isn't your decision alone. This is a governmental decision that's both you know, branches.
0: Thank you very much.
1: I have a follow the money question that I've never been able to get answered. Usually, I think of it in terms of Afghanistan and Iraq, but it could apply to everything you've said. And that's, of all this money we're spending, how much of it has actually left the United States? I would hypothesize very little. And then the uh, corollary question is, if you stop spending so much of all this money, what would happen to our economy if the military-industrial complex actually began to shrink? Well, a lot of the money, excuse me, does end up overseas. In uh, Kabul, you go down the streets in Kabul, Afghanistan. And there are all these big, garishly colored houses behind high walls, and they are called poppy palaces on the presumption that poppy trade, uh, drug trade, funds a lot of them. But it's not just that. These people make a lot of money as uh, concessionaires for the U.S. government, contractors for the U.S. government. The uh, Special the Inspector General, who we've met we've had here at Cato, does great work, recently put out a report indicating something like, you know, I don't know, it's 100, some large number, of, uh, large number of contractors who are receiving government money who are thought to be Taliban sympathizers. And the U.S. Army won't cut them off because of due process concerns. You're saying, okay, these are people who are killing our soldiers, and we're we can't do. Yeah, I mean, so so a certain amount of the money is going off in some very crazy but places. But are subcontractors to American contractors? Uh, some of them, some of them are direct contractors. Oh, I mean, it's it's okay. a complicated pro- how the aid stuff I and mean, the Afghans have demanded more control. You know, one of the things we've been doing, the CIA has been giving literally bags of cash to Hamid Karzai. I don't think, now some of that money may end up in U.S. banks. I don't think it's actually being spent a lot here. You know, we presume a lot of it's probably parked in Dubai banks. A lot of families are probably in Dubai. So there's a lot, lot of the money leaks. In terms of what would it do if you stopped all the spending? I mean, no doubt there are a lot of domestic industries. I mean, the, I mean, Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex. But go back to 1945. We had 13 million men under arms. We had massive arms production: B-17s, you know, B-24s. All this stuff's pouring off the, the line. I mean, building new ships. And the war comes to an end. And we didn't keep going, saying, "Oh my goodness, what if the economy collapses?" Now, there are people who predicted the economy would collapse, but people wanted out of the military. They said, "I want to be demobilized. I don't want to, you know, you, you don't keep me here like it's a job. I want to get out." And we stopped the contracts, you know, we stopped all the construction, and lo and behold, the economy boomed because that money moved into private sector. I think that would happen here. Now, that puts a premium on getting our domestic economic policy, right? And I don't have a lot of confidence on that, of course, on both, not just you know, President Obama, who of course, I mean, it's great, his great compromise in terms of tax reform is, I want to spend any extra money. But what, what could be more obvious than that, I mean, of course? And you know, the GOP isn't an awful lot better in a lot of cases, so that the challenge is getting those policies right, which would help us in any kind of a transition. But in certain ways, the worst thing you can do, I mean, we need tanks, but is to think you're going to create jobs by making tanks you don't need. Almost anything you spend money on would be better than that. You know, I mean, in essence, you're just dumping things into the ocean if you don't need them. Thank you.
0: Um, my question sort of deals with some of the potential consequences of, you know, you talked about subsidizing European allies. and. I'm thinking, you know, if not after the Marshall Plan, you know, due to the Cold War, at least after the Cold War, do you think the United States maybe have missed an opportunity to say, okay, you know, we need to scale down some of our bases, our troops? And do you think because we may have not drawn down as much as maybe you might have advocated or maybe we should have done, that Europe has kind of felt free to, you know, maybe expand NATO more on our backs and, you know, pursue, like you said, um, some foreign policy uh, adventures that they really can't even undertake themselves And they've sacrificed some of their autonomy abroad to pursue welfare state ventures at home. So do you think that the United States may have missed an opportunity to scale back its European involvement? And do you think that's had any lasting impact?
1: Yeah, I think so. I would say foreign policy should be viewed as it's very much kind of a uh, a consequence of circumstances. So circumstances change, your foreign policy should change. In 1945, the world looked pretty scary. We had just dealt with uh, Nazi Germany and kind of Japanese militarism. America's allies, for the most part, were in ruin, certainly in Europe. And even, I mean, you look throughout East Asia, I mean, Australia and others have been through an awful lot in terms of relatively small economies trying to deal with it. Uh, You know, revolution is about to happen in China. We didn't know when exactly it would, but it was pretty clear the fight there was going to start back up. And Stalin was a really nasty guy who had a large army, and he's kind of swallowing up Eastern Europe. So I think, you know, in a case like that, you can make a very good argument for NATO, that at that moment, the Europeans were not particularly well positioned, either politically or economically, to on their own defend themselves. And one of the reasons we went to war in World War II was to make sure no one power, whether it be the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, controlled Eurasia. You know, so to control all of that would be a pretty bad deal. But even Eisenhower, when NATO was created, and he was appointed to the initial military head, his view was this should be kind of a temporary thing. He was very, very worried about creating dependency on the part of the Europeans. So one could have imagined a policy that would have kept NATO, you go into the 60s and 70s, but would have scaled back American presence. Because we, we spent years whining about military spending of our allies, and we'd have a NATO summit. Everybody would agree to spend 3%, and then they wouldn't. Well, you know, it couldn't get it through parliament. We have other things we're trying to spend our money on. And then things that we got mad at them, like the natural gas pipeline to the Soviet Union. We're defending them from the Soviet Union, and they're building a natural gas pipeline to buy natural gas from the Soviet Union. It's kind of what the South Koreans did. We defend the South Koreans. They spent 10 years providing something like $10 billion in aid as well as economic investment and other things to North Korea, well, money's fungible. Where do we think that $10 billion went? To build nuclear weapons. But That makes a lot of sense. So I think Europe did kind of gain, you know, and it was able to direct that money to uh, welfare programs. And I think it we, we lives on that to this day. It's spent basically 60 years used to this. So it's just hard to imagine giving it up. And it's really hard on them. And there's, there's more, I think, of a recognition now that the U.S. is clearly going to be downsizing. And they they are very concerned about the pivot to Asia, whether that means anything we can argue about. But the Europeans see that as downgrading Europe. So I think there's some recognition they're going to have to deal with it today. Thank you.
0: Good morning, my name is Mike. I'm a Canadian medical student. Uh, I'd like you to comment on the effectiveness of so-called economic sanctions. Uh, I always, uh, it seems to me that, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, it seems to me that those uh, harmed by sanctions uh, are generally kind of helpless anyway and that dictators are kind of insulated. They couldn't really care less what happens to their uh, civilians.
1: I mean, I think it's worth looking for a variety of tools. It's bad if you know, all you have is diplomacy and war, if there's nothing in between. So I think it makes sense to look at something like economic sanctions. I think in general, you're absolutely right that for the most part, sanctions hurt average people as opposed to the elites. Indeed, the elites are very often able to manipulate them. I visited uh, Yugoslavia back in 1993 when Serbia was under sanctions. At that point, Milosevic was still in power. I met with uh, Zinjic Zoran Zinzic, who later became prime minister and was assassinated. Zinzic was the leader of the opposition. And his comment to me was the problem with sanctions are my supporters don't even have money for gasoline to go to a rally. But, of course, Milosevic and the government manipulate the stuff to enrich all of their friends. And, you know, a place like Iraq, I mean, who suffers? It isn't uh, Saddam Hussein. It's people. I think they're most likely to be effective if you can target a partic- one item, like oil, and where you can get essentially unanimity so it's harder for them to cheat. So the more you get close to that, and if you're trying to, say, stop money from going to a bad regime, you have a better shot. Uh, And I think there are points where you just recognize that whatever you thought about them, if they haven't worked, you stop. I mean, what are we doing in Cuba? I mean, Cuba has European investment. I was there legally a decade ago, and I stayed at a Dutch hotel. It's not as if there's not foreign investment. Well, we tried, and it's not working. Or Burma. I mean, I think that they've made the correct policies to try to engage Burma after years of sanctions because we were kind of stuck at a place where nothing's working in China, was the biggest, you know, moving in there, because they weren't helping on sanctions. They took advantage, so then you step back and say, okay, we've tried it and it's not working. So I'd keep sanctions as a tool, but I would be very cognizant of the fact that they very often hurt the wrong people. You know, we're trying with uh, Korea, North Korea, to, to target, actually, the elites, in terms of the luxury goods they want. Now, I think that's probably a pretty good approach. If you can try to deny the Mercedes-Benzes, which go to the friends of Kim Jong-un, well, that's a worthwhile thing if we can do that, at least some discomfort to the people who are causing most of the problems. Thank you. Um, one problem that I've run into when I talk
0: with defense hawks on the right and the left, but particularly on the right, is uh, there's this notion that our enemies in the world are—they're not rational. That there's a sort of West and the Rest idea that they don't have Aristotelian logic or whatever. So, and I
1: think that this gives them this idea that we can just run in and bomb whoever because if we—if we don't stop them now, it's inevitable they'll ruin everything. And
0: I, I was just wondering if—if if you have ever kind of run into this problem in your Foreign policy experience, and, and and I wondered if you could maybe
1: talk a bit about a way to get past that kind of intellectual lock jam. Oh, sure. Uh, and it's I think it's it's one reason why people are a lot more concerned about Iran than North Korea. And I'd say for good reason, in the sense that I don't I've never seen any evidence that anyone in North Korea has any interest in having their virgins in the next world. They want it now. I mean, the leadership is enjoying themselves. They get the chavasse Regal and the Mercedes-Benz. They want it now. I think the good news is if you look around the world, for the most part, regime elites seem to be rational. Evil, but rational. So I would say that you want heightened concern. That's fair enough. But you you look at targeting. You look at kind of choices. That's why I say it's important to get into somebody's mind. The Times Square bomber did a very evil thing. But he was not irrational in the sense of, I just want to kill people. He had a reason. So you need to bear that in mind in terms of so you may have to kill him, or in this case, capture him and throw him away and you know, throw away the key. Fine by me. But recognize that maybe some of the stuff you're doing that set him off will set other people off. If you don't have to do them, don't do them. So I'd say, yeah, I mean, but you know, irrational people can sit in the Kremlin, right? You know, irrational people can be anywhere. And the notion that we don't have any irrational people, I mean, have these people dealt with government? sat in a bureaucracy, imagine you know, the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, clerk who does whatever, imagine them sitting in the Pentagon, I mean, you know, <laughs> so I think that what we should, we shouldn't assume, I think it's very dangerous to assume we're, you know, I get that a lot in the sense of, like, we're the only people who care about freedom, well, no, yeah. we're the only people who care about independence, well, no, I mean, I, I travel the world a lot and talk to folks, and I don't get that. What I find is that you know, they all tend to be nationalists and patriots and other things, which I may not like their positions, but it's important to take that into account. So I'd say, yeah, acknowledge there can be irrational people out there. Take that into account. But going around just trying to kill irrational people, you've got a pretty a lot of people to kill. And there are going to be a lot of adverse consequences from that because you know, a lot of people are going to get mad when you're out just wandering around killing people. And don't assume your own people are much better in some cases and are able to kind of find the right people to kill, and make those judgments. You know, I've always found you know, on the conservative side is people who don't like social engineering, don't like bureaucracies, suddenly believe that on foreign policy, the U.S. government, which they otherwise hate, is wonderful. Wander around the world, fix other societies. And think, well, wait a minute. These are the guys who've destroyed the housing market, wrecked cities like Detroit, you know, given us $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities, yet you believe if they only send the military over to Afghanistan, we can have democracy there and they'll love us. What? It's the same people, same system, same incentives. Thank you. I was wondering if you could elaborate on uh, what you think the role and purpose of our military alliances with NATO, uh, Asian countries like Philippines, Korea, Japan, uh, should be in a post-Cold uh, War world. Well, I, the question you know, about the uh, purpose of our alliances, I'd say at the moment we probably don't need many. What I, would, I would distinguish between having good cooperative relationships and alliances with security commitments. I mean, all of our alliances are effectively us defend them. Right? I mean, the Philippines is going to come to our defense, right? No, it isn't. I mean, just not. You know, and countries like South Korea have tried to kind of help make their case by sending troops to wars that we shouldn't be in, you know, put troops into Afghanistan or Iraq. Well, I'm glad they're doing that, but, I mean, it's just not that helpful, and it's not a good reason to risk war defending them from a potentially nuclear-armed power. What I'd say is we want to have cooperative relationships, intelligence sharing, emergency-based access. We want to work together on shared issues, what it would be more helpful in Asia is to have the South Koreans and the Japanese talk to one another. There's a whole history there and the Japanese always mess it up by saying dumb things. You know, every five years a, a minister explains how South Korea should be very happy they were a colony of Japan. Well, for some reason the South Koreans don't believe that. You know, I mean, in Europe, I don't see any reason why we should be part of NATO. Now, we should work together. I mean, they're the other potential serious military power. They share values. They're economically powerful. But it really should be a sense of, you know, if there's a North African problem, you guys do it, right? I mean, well, you don't need us. I mean, if you really can't defend yourselves from Russia, you have 10 times the GDP, three times the population. If you really, you see, you're telling me you can't do that? I think that's, but you want to have close relationships. So again, this is not isolationism. It's say, find the military relationship that works given a set of circumstances, adjust it over time. Maybe in East Asia, if China becomes much more dangerous, you know, you could imagine trying to adjust that relationship but I'd much prefer to have Japan doing a lot more. Recognizing other countries in the region may not like that, but I don't care. It's 70 years after the war ended. It's time for Japan to do more. We shouldn't be the guys on the front lines. If they're worried about China, they should be.
0: Thank you. Hi, my name is Ann Garten and I'm from Iowa. And you touched on my, my basic question uh, about uh, when you mentioned culture and with the people here in DC the ones that are running our government I guess the question that I have is um, uh, when is the USA going to to accept that the Middle East uprisings are mostly based on on the religious uh not you know not getting along like the Sunni and the Shiites and the other, the other groups. I mean, how much basic information does does do our people have so they understand? And of course, that goes along with the culture too. And then on the other hand, then how about the other countries? Do they understand us as Christianity? They, I mean, we're the evil Americans. So I guess I want to know if there's anybody around that uh, goes into these things in depth as you have expressed to us today. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: Uh, Look, there are a lot of people who understand. The question is whether or not decision-makers understand. Now, I am told the problem, some of these things, you get it from good people who seem to have good access, but, I mean, these are not as if I was in the room. But I am told that when a number of Kurdish leaders met with George George W. Bush in 2003 before going to war, that they realized very quickly he did not understand the distinction between Sunni and Shia which is a fairly important one. A Friend of mine who served in the State Department intelligence service said in the US went in the decision makers, that doesn't mean other people, but decision makers were not aware of the role of the Shia clergy, including some of the most important leaders in Iraq. So they, you know, and this was, kind of came out with Bremer who decided we're gonna have, or what was it, it gonna be? We're gonna do kind of meetings to decide you know, members and whatnot as opposed to have elections. And Sistani, who was the most important guy, the US didn't have a clue with this guy. He said, no, not at all. And a lot of people listened to him. So my sense is there's a certain level of ignorance. Part of that was the Bush administration at least reacted in a way that we want to make sure our friends are part of this process. We don't trust the other guys. The problem is the other guys are the ones who've been involved in the area and knew it. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't points where you have to realize people who know the most might actually be bad on philosophy. I mean, they may do, want to do things that are dumb beyond their knowledge. But I do think that we very often see a, a break there. Uh, that's a problem you see in, a, in Egypt. We see it everywhere. Do we want a democracy or do we want liberty? They're not the same. Now, democracy is a piece of having liberty, but you can have illiberal democracies. And I think that's the challenge in Egypt. It's clearly a coup. You can't act as if it's not a coup. Morsi is not my guy, but kind of calling in the military and having it shoot down people is not good either. Now, to my mind, the best thing you can do there is cut the aid and walk away. This shouldn't be our our fight. And these are the points where you say, you know, "Do they understand us?" Other countries don't have a lot better understanding, I think, of us and our motivations than we do necessarily of them. So very often you've got a real problem. What well, I mean, you look at some of the, the conspiracy theories that float around Pakistan and Arab countries. Oh, they're, they're crazy, loony stuff. You know, Israel was behind 9/11, and I don't know. It's like all the Jews got out of the Twin Towers. I mean, idiotic, stupid, horrid stuff. And unfortunately that stuff matters because it kind of motivates not only the street as they call it, but politicians.
0: Okay. Uh, I have a question with more regards to foreign aid and I think you touched upon s- some parts of it before. Uh, like considering that the United States is still the largest contributor of foreign aid in the world and also that there have been some uh, humanitarian foreign aid programs that have been very successful during the most recent Bush administration uh, like, for example, PEPFAR and the increase of uh, foreign aid to Africa that uh, probably vaccinated up to 2 million people against HIV. So uh, what role, uh, if any, do you think that foreign aid, and more specifically humanitarian foreign aid, should play in U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, he, foreign aid is
1: a, a big mess. What I would say, just very briefly, because we're getting to the end of the session, is I don't see much role for economic development foreign aid because I think the experience of 60, 70 years, for the most part, is you subsidize socialism, you subsidize deregist economic policies, you subsidize authoritarian regimes. The best way to develop is free market economic policies. And you look at Calcutta has a freedom index, Heritage does one. You look at the relationships, countries that are free economically grow better. They don't need money. You know, so the money is sopped up by all the evil regimes. I mean, in in Egypt, what it's done is it's basically allowed them to have the worst kind of economic policies, kept the people impoverished. It was kind of military security aid. It might be effective, but you've got to decide you want to buy, is buying the friendship of this country useful? It's a blunt judgment. You know, very often I don't think it's the case. Very often it goes to bad people. But if you can have a military, certainly you can think of some foreign aid as being perhaps a cheaper way to achieve some security end. But you know, be, realize the adverse consequence. You give money to the generals in Egypt—is this good or bad? And you look at liberty, you look at you know other sorts of things. I think the best argument is for humanitarian, and there I think you have to be very careful. Things like food for peace haven't had much to do with helping poor people. It's been getting rid of domestic American food surpluses. I think, for example, the AIDS program is very useful. What you want to do is recognize there's a lot of private stuff as well. You don't want to push that out. The Gates. Uh, you know, Foundation, along with Merck, for example, has done a lot of very good work on AIDS in Botswana, where they have not only kind of providing drugs but trying to set up clinics and create the infrastructure. And It's always one of the challenges, not enough to hand out drugs if people aren't prepared to take them and don't have the ability to kind of monitor, take them regularly. It's a real challenge in some of these countries. So I wouldn't be against all humanitarian. aid, I'd say be, but be very careful in picking it out and recognizing some is going to be much more effective than others. If you got rid of the rest of it, I mean, the amount of money you're talking about is relatively small for that. The biggest chunks are the other stuff.
0: Okay. Thank you. One more. 18-word question. 37-word
1: uh, response. Oh, that's going to be tough. Huh?
0: Okay. Let's say you're made in charge of American foreign policy. What would you do first, second, third? What's the most important thing we need to do?
1: <laughs> Tom, I have the podium. See. Um, I think what I would do is I'd put in phone calls to all of America's allies and saying, you know, the good times are over. Now, we will work with you on the timing, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't in Korea pull U.S. troops out tomorrow. I think we're talking about, in certain ways, a potentially dicey security situation. I don't think the North Koreans are crazy, but they can easily make mistakes and do dumb things. So I'd say, you know, the alliance is over in terms of America's defense commitment. Now, we will work with you in terms of timing withdrawal and sale of weapons so you have a military yourself that you think is necessary in terms of defending yourselves. I'd essentially do the same thing for the Europeans. There you could do it much quicker. There's no serious threat to most of Europe. I think that'd be the starting point. And as I started to rethink foreign policy, then I'd start making judgments in terms of the kind of military structure that I want. And I'd announce very clearly, no more nation building, no more social engineering. the The U.S. is very involved in the world, but... No more of that stuff. And the final, the third point, would be, you know, it's kind of of like our governor of Texas. The third one was, uh, what was it? Um, The third one would be, if you screw with us, you will regret it. That this doesn't mean we're going to be wimps. What this means is we're going to be extra protective of our own interests and our own society and our own security. So you know, we're less concerned about other countries. They can defend themselves. But don't try anything with us, because we will take action. We will protect our people and their liberties and our constitutional system.